I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Linda Carducci, and we're talking all about Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 21. It's a work you might not know by name, but are likely familiar with some of its melodies. With musical examples, we explore its operatic qualities and virtuosity, but we also use a musical term you might not be familiar with. A cadenza is a section of a concerto where the orchestra stops, and it's just the soloist alone. Sometimes it's improvised, sometimes it's written out. Either way, a cadenza is a moment of freedom for the soloist to show off. It's funny, Linda, if you had a Venn diagram that had a Mozart piano concerto, Neil Diamond's 1972 song, Song Sung Blue, and Elvira Madigan, a 1967 Swedish film, this melody would be right in the middle. I think those are three categories that you probably wouldn't put together otherwise. No, and yet that shows you the value of this gorgeous melody that Mozart used, and the fact that Centuries later, there was somebody in the 1960s and the 1970s who felt it was valuable enough to use either in a movie or base it for a new song. And Mozart just had an absolute talent for writing these floating and effortless melodies, very aria-like. And it's not surprising being that when we truly look at him and his music, he was really like a true opera composer. He was. You know, he considered opera to be a very important form, and he put a lot of work into it. As we know, he wrote three masterpieces, if you want to, if you want to refer to them, along with many other operas, too. And as you say, even in the instrumental music, Mozart's melodies are similar to arias. So we're talking Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 21. We're going to hear those qualities and the examples we'll listen to. Mozart was writing so much music at this time. When he completed it in March of 1785, he's 29 years old, right? And he's he's busier than ever. He's married. And it sounds like it's just a whirlwind in Mozart's life just getting this out the door. Yes. And can you imagine all those ideas that were in his head? Because he wasn't writing only piano concertos. He was writing operas around this time. He was writing instrumental music and uh, and and chamber music, too. But Mozart was uh, very popular at about this time. The Viennese population, the Viennese public, I should say, very much appreciated his work. And he saw the piano concerto as something that would promote himself as a composer and as a pianist. And if we look at Vienna at that time, there was a growing middle class and a thriving economy. So now the bourgeoisie, the middle class, could attend performances of Mozart's music or anybody's music. Previously, public performances were, were, were not that common. A lot of them were restricted to the um, royalty and aristocracy and palaces or whatever. But now we see with a growing economy in Vienna at the time, the bourgeoisie attending the concerts, and um, Mozart was very popular with them. And Mozart's father was also visiting him around this time that he completed this uh, 21st Piano Concerto and also premiering it. And he, father was remarking how, in letters and things to people, uh, just kind of how shocked he was about Mozart and even Constanza, how busy they were, saying the piano is carted out of the house almost every day 
for another concert. They're so busy. Mozart has to be in so many places. In fact, Constanza is kind of going off on his behalf at events because Mozart's got this premiere this night or meeting with these people this night, and he's just constantly composing. He finished the 20th Piano Concerto, I think, just a few weeks before he wrote this one. And as you were kind of mentioning, he's writing all this basically in his head, and he's just writing things down as fast as he can. The ink's probably not even dry when he's giving some of these premieres. Yes, and what's interesting, John, is that his father, Leopold, did not want him to move to Vienna. Leopold really wanted Mozart, Wolfgang, to stay in Salzburg and be a nice court composer. And Mozart had this independent streak. So even though he was at times very dominated by his father, and his father played an important role in his life, Mozart had that independent streak to move from Salzburg to Vienna because he knew that he could be um, more successful there and pursue this ambition. So you're right. There was this constant flurry of activity. And I think that Leopold may have been surprised and happily surprised by that, to see that Mozart was thriving in Vienna. And Linda, how would you describe this piano concerto in general? You're a pianist, of course. And how is this one to play? Is it just like super virtuosic and hard? Is it kind of in the middle? Or where does it kind of lie in in that realm? Um, I would say that it may have been virtuosic for its time because uh, we didn't see that kind of virtuosity or those long scales and those long chromatic passages and dynamics um, prior to this. So Mozart really took it to a different level. So for its time, I think it was virtuosic. I think if we look at it in our current context and we compare it to some uh, romantic piano concertos of you know, Brahms or Rachmaninoff or all, I think that we might consider this fairly straightforward. But Mozart uses a lot of chromatics, and that's what struck me in this particular piano concerto number 21. So when the piano goes off on its own and sometimes these flourishes, these long up and down passages ascending and descending, whether he's by himself or, you know, piano solo or whether he's accompanied by the uh, orchestra, there's a lot of chromaticism in there. So you, you got to make sure you have a very good touch. So chromaticism, like there's a lot of extra notes that you don't find in the key that the piano concerto was in. Yes. So if like, for example, if you were in the key of C, which this is, and there's no sharps or flats at the key of C, so you can play a regular scale that has eight, eight notes in it with no sharps or flats, chromaticism is going to add all of those little uh, half tones that are in between there. I would like to mention one thing that you talked about before, though, John. The piano concerto that he wrote right before this one, really just a month before it, was the piano concerto number 20, which is quite different. It was uh, in a minor key, D minor, had sort of a more somber tone, a more driving tone, almost similar to his uh, symphony number 40, which is in G minor and has that sort of driving, driving tone to it, almost a darker tone. But after composing that, just a month later, Mozart was composing this piano concerto number 21, which overall is a rather sunny piece. So let's get into some of the music here. I just want to play the opening of this right away. Let's just listen to the opening here. Linda, I'm going to be saying this a lot through this episode, and that is just, I mean, listen to how almost, I don't want to say obnoxious, but it's just so simple. It's such an easy, fun opening. 
It's predictable. After a couple of seconds, you know just where it's going, and it's fun. And I think that is the main takeaway I want people to have with this, and that is it's just fun. It's just a fun, great piece of music. Not everything has to be some statement on life or existential or esoteric. It can just be fun. And I think Mozart recognized that, and we're going to hear that in all of this music, just how it's fun for the sake of being fun. And sometimes that's all music needs to be. Exactly, especially like the third movement, too. It's very sunny, almost operatic third movement. A little more contemplative in the second movement. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you about the first movement. We open up with a very simple theme. It's almost like a broken chord just a little bit. Yeah. Even the second theme is, is fairly simple. But Mozart had the smarts to start developing it. And as we heard there in the beginning, though, the winds come right in, too. The, the winds play a very important role in this work. They do. And this is what I love about Mozart. It's so simple... But there's so much more to it. For instance, we'll hear in a second, winds passing lines. And there's times where we hear a line, and then the next instrument plays that same line. And then there's times where they're kind of sharing the same line, and they kind of split it between themselves, where Mozart writes, going from flute to oboe, he does it in such a way that the range and the timbre almost makes it sound like one instrument. It's so simple, and I just love it so much. <laughs> it is. You know, and if sometimes if you didn't focus on that, you might just sort of bypass it. You think, oh, well, this just is one line. Yeah. But Mozart changes the texture just a little bit by having the two different instruments doing that. And longish, normalish introduction before the piano comes in. When the piano comes in, it doesn't just jump in with that boom, 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 that kind of marching theme right away. It's a little bit different, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yes. What it is is uh, it's an introduction. So the piano opens after two minutes. So there's two minutes of, of the strings and the winds establishing the theme and maybe a little development here and there. Then the piano enters in after, the, after those two minutes, and it introduces itself with these flourish of 16th notes. And then a trill. But when it's introducing itself in these little flourishes, it's almost as if it's timid. It's almost as if Mozart's just having a little pun, like, can I peek in here for just a minute? I, I, remember, I'm here. I'm a piano concerto. Remember, I'm a piano. So let me just peek in here for just a few minutes here for just this these little flourish. Then he starts taking it up, and he, go, he, he has that trill in the right hand that starts saying, okay, I'm here. Watch out. I'm here. And then he goes into the full prominent role of the piano. Oh, I love that. It's, it's exactly what you're describing. It's like he's peeking his head around the corner into a party, <laughs> like, hello, yeah. waiting yeah. if anyone notices him. And then he comes out with this trill, which just adds to just how playful it is. It's funny because I would expect the piano then to go into that little boom, boom, put on that little theme mm -hmm. and then kind of improvise or have variations on it, but just go straight into this trill. It's a moment that grabs your ear and he does go into minor a little bit here, mm -hmm. right? And he does it with the piano alone. And he's done that in some other concertos too, right? Where the piano is just totally by itself. Yes. No, th that's right. And I think that that plays a very important role because when Mozart wrote these piano concertos, he was writing them to establish himself not only as a composer, but as a virtuoso uh, pianist. And so he wants 
to make sure that the piano gets a very prominent role here. And there are some passages throughout this entire concerto that we'll listen to, John, as we discuss, where the piano is playing some pretty dominant um, scales and arpeggios and chromatics to establish himself that this is this is not just um, maybe an equal dialogue between orchestra and piano, but that the piano really is dominant. And when we think, too, about uh, Mozart, the instrument that he was playing on when he wrote this, it was a, a forte piano. Okay. He grew up playing the harpsichord and the clavichord, but the forte piano was um, somewhat of a cross between what we might consider the harpsichord and the modern-day piano, and so it didn't have a lot of power to it. That wasn't the objective of the forte piano, but a clarity. That was the objective, a clarity of tone, um, delicacy, and it allowed legato and lyricism. Mm -hmm. So I think the forte piano was a really nice instrument for this. Let's listen to a little bit here where the piano moves into this minor key by itself, and then I think something just so beautiful happens towards the end. Here's what I love. It's so beautiful and minor, but when it, the strings come back in, it goes back into major, and he goes all the way down the keyboard, and then it goes all the way back up, and it slows down and just kind of lands on this new melody. And for me, I always describe it, and some musicians describe this kind of thing as well. If you take a paper airplane, I loved airplanes when I was a little kid, paper airplanes. <laughs> if you take a paper airplane, and you're in a big room, and you throw it, and it kind of goes up high, and then right at its peak in the air, it kind of just lands on a ledge gracefully. Mm. And that's how I think of these these lines that he's able to do here. It's a little bit deceptive. It is. That's a good way to describe it, by the way, that at the very beginning of that segment, da-da-dum, ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum. Mozart did that in his G minor symphony. That's right. Yeah, at the very beginning of it. So we see that, and I've seen that in other things, Mozart. There's an example of sort of using a, a half tone. Right, the chromaticism. But I think Beethoven took his cue from that long stretch that you were just playing. Oh, yes. You can hear you can hear Beethoven. I think you can hear some other composers as well as we move on here. There's a sound here that I think has some commonalities. The piano comes in with a theme finally, and it's just playful. It's, it's childlike, but it's just, again, for me, it's just fun. And speaking of chromaticism, there's a lot of these lines, in addition to the one we heard just a moment ago, where the piano's moving up and down, up and down. It's kind of predictable, but in a good way, where it's not like, oh, kind of boring, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen, but it's kind of that satisfying, like you watch one of those satisfying videos of something being cut just perfectly, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's right, yeah. There are some nice flourishes, too, that Mozart uses in this first movement where um, it's almost a dialogue between the piano and the, and the orchestra. Now, let's be certain that this is a piano concerto and the piano is the dominant instrument, but there are times there's a nice little dialogue interplay going on between the piano and, uh, and the winds. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that brings us back to um, an aspect of opera. Yes, very operatic, and maybe this is all in my head. I want to play something here and see... Maybe if you agree, maybe you disagree with this. There's a composer I hear in this example towards the end. It sounds a little bit more modern than 
you would think if you heard this by itself and not knowing if it's Mozart or not. starts off very, very Mozart, and then as it goes along into that kind of dreamlike quality towards the end, it reminds me of maybe a little bit of an impromptu by Schubert, but also Sansons as well, like the Africa fantasy. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but exactly. And I think it reappears in the cadenza as well. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Mozart was before these composers, but... You know, it's just this kind of evolution and you just it's fun to trace back the sound or maybe it's make believe, but tracing back the sound of these composers to, you know, Mozart and then Haydn and then Bach. And yes. And these later uh, composers were influenced by the styles that were popular during their day. And say, for example, the Romantic era. So they wouldn't necessarily write music like in the classical structure that Mozart wrote. But yes, they might use Mozart as the backbone. And that brings us to the second movement. And we kind of tease in the beginning this kind of Venn diagram, Mozart piano concerto, Neil Diamond, and a 1967 Swedish film that is this melody that opens up the second movement. It's beautiful. If you've, you've definitely heard it before, even if you don't recognize it being the part of his 21st concerto. And that's this melody that Neil Diamond used. You have to kind of squint with your ears to hear it, but in song, <laughs> sung blue. Mm-hmm. And also, it's this theme of this movie, I guess. It's it's your favorite movie. Is that right? Elvira Madigan? It's not my favorite it's movie. It's not your favorite movie? Okay. <laughs> well, I know you don't like it, but the good news is I had never even heard of this until recently, this movie. So I think the associations of it will kind of die out with time. I'm hoping so, because it's a, it's a gorgeous work, and I think it does a disservice to Mozart to associate it with a sort of a second-rate movie. I think it's on YouTube. I, I watched a few minutes of the opening. There's no subtitle, so I didn't understand it. And I thought, okay, well, that's enough, and <laughs> turned it off. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure it has its, its fans, of course. Sure. But it opens with this beautiful line. The, the piano carries it as well. And it is. It brings us back to that operatic quality, that aria quality that Mozart just understood. Yes, and um, you know Mo- Mozart's operas are so varied, and there's, there's some wonderful ensemble pieces in his operas. There's there's bravuro, you know, uh, arias, but he also has some lovely, um, gentle, slower uh, arias in his operas. And this particular theme of the second re- reminds me of a of a Mozart aria. I assume you've probably played this second movement on your own before, right? Yes, yes. When Mozart writes. Well, there's all these legends of Mozart writing a concerto, and then at the premiere, whoever's turning pages, they'll realize suddenly half the pages are blank. And Mozart's still just kind of playing his concerto, and they're just kind of wondering what's happening. But the writing is so sparse in this movement, it seems like maybe there was something more Mozart was doing at the premiere. Maybe he wrote it down this way, but there was a freedom for pianists to add flourishes, add little improvisation. Yes, Mozart would embellish it on the spot when he was playing this. So he, the melody is relatively sparse, as you say, but he would embellish it, improvise a little bit on it when he was playing. I've heard also that was the case with cadenzas, that sometimes Mozart just did not write cadenzas for his piano concertos because he knew that when he was going to be performing them, he would just improvise on it. Right. So sometimes when you will look at a recording of a Mozart concerto, you'll see that the cadenza was by a 
several other different uh, composers. Oh, that's right. But what you said, I think is a better word, embellish, because you're not people aren't just going off into like Thelonious Monk here for <laughs> the second movement, but they're adding embellishment. And I think we can hear that a little bit. Um, we'll kind of do a comparison between two recordings. So we hear in that recording of Geza Anda, very beautiful, but also very simple, sparse, as basically Mozart wrote it. But there's another recording with Murray Pry where he adds a little bit more into it. adds just these little things, but they, they add so much. The whole thing is there, but it has this different kind of shimmer or just a little bit more brightness to it. Yes, and I think of it as almost a, as a vocal um, addition because if a singer singing, they might add that tiny little trill in their voice to embellish a particular line. Again, going back to Mozart being um, operatic, the interesting thing about, I think, the second movement that you've been showing, John, is that it's a, a rather sparse, simple melody that is the main melody of the second movement. And yet, it is so elegant and refined, and so uh, it may appear simple, but it is difficult to actually play uh, Mozart because you have to maintain the line movement, if you will, from the first note to the very end of the phrase. So they're not individually played notes. Right. This is a line a movement from one note to the end note. So sustaining that line, especially when it's a slower tempo like this, can be very difficult for any composer. And Mozart doesn't give you a lot of um, left hand right there to sort of um, muddle things along. Okay. So that right hand is is clear and uh, standing out on its own. So it sounds like you need a tremendous amount of finesse. It's not just the notes. If you play just the notes, it's, it's not going to work. And you're playing this on an instrument that naturally immediately decays after you play the note. And you have to keep this going for this long line. Exactly. That's a great point. Because if it's a string instrument, if it's a vocal, if it's a voice, for example, or if it's a wind instrument, you can sustain it with your breath. Or, or the bow. Um, you're right, it decays. But on the other hand, you can't overly interpret it either. We are not yet into the Romantic era. Mm -hmm. And so we want to have this sense of elegance that is the classical era. So it's a fine line that you have to watch or play when you are playing that particular simple melody. And what makes this movement being able to be pulled off is what we're basically not paying attention to when we're listening. And that is this steady stream of downbeats and eighth note triplets just bump 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 that's propelling the whole thing forward without that it could just be stagnant in place and just fall back but just that gentle so subtle almost not even probably maybe to the average listener they might not even notice it mm -hmm. and that's kind of its job is to just move things forward but not take attention and in the third movement there's a lot of interplay like the first movement and then some extra things that I think point towards what you're talking about with being operatic. But let's just listen to the opening of the third movement um, real quick. 
it's this again this very simple theme that you will find yourself humming and singing along as you're doing dishes or whatever instantly rememberable really and then i mean we're 15 20 seconds very short introduction and then the piano just jumps in with that theme and goes yeah, it's it's very sunny, it's ebullient, and it's a nice contrast to that very reflective second movement that we just came out of. When I hear the opening of the third movement, I think of the Marriage of Figaro. Okay. Yeah, you know, which has lots of comic moments to it and oh, yeah. wonderful flourishes. And in fact, Mozart wrote the Marriage of Figaro and Cosi Fantute, both both comic operas, around the same time that he wrote this. Okay. Mozart's sense of humor, I think, does come out in his in his music. Oh, absolutely. Sense of humor is, again, from the beginning, we were talking about he's just peeking out. Hello. You know, you ready for me? Mm -hmm. And then um, even just skipping ahead in the movement for a second, this reminds me of Cosi Fontute, the the opera, this little moment here of this kind of wind flourishes. That's a good point, John. He uses wind flourishes so often in his comic operas, and they're just a wonderful effect. Oh, yeah. And he does that here, and it's just, I imagine if you're in the audience hearing this premiere, one, you're lucky, but two, you're just probably smiling the whole way through. And here's a movement, too, where he does show that the piano is in charge here. This is a piano concerto, and Mozart wants to show some some uh, virtuosity here. That was one of the purposes of writing uh, these piano concertos. And so he has some scales. He's got some larger arpeggio movements that aren't necessarily um, melody. But they're um, a showcase for the piano to maybe bridge some parts of the work. So the piano is coming into here dominant in some places. See, that was a bridge to that theme that just came in at the very end there. Okay. You know, so when we heard that long section right there with the piano, it's pretty much solo, a little bit of accompaniment. There really wasn't a melody there, but it was a bridge. Yes. And it also showed off the piano. And it's like these sequences where you've got a sentence, another sentence, and another sentence. It's kind of evolving on itself. And it's, for me, again, it's that predictable nature of it. It's musically very satisfying. It's a nice rhyming, complete section. You know what I think you're you're describing is the typical classical structure. That was that was one of the hallmarks of the classical era. That's true. Nice and complete, but then Mozart also he does it in kind of new ways and reminds me of that opening uh, movement where he suddenly goes to minor and then he has these kind of deceptive moments of where it's kind of predictable but in the end, you're going wherever Mozart wants to take you. You know, it's those little parts of those little creativity sections you're talking about, John, I think that separate Mozart from other composers. It sounds so simple, but it's so hard to pull off. <laughs> it, no, This is the reason why we're listening to this and not, I don't know, some random Viennese person who wrote, I don't know, a little tune. But it's he pulls it off and he knew how to do that, make something crazy difficult or virtuosic. And he knew how to do something like this, where it appeals to everyone and it's just rememberable. And that was one of the uh, the, the objectives of Mozart. Yeah. In a letter to a friend, he was talking about achieving this perfect balance between opulence in a work, piano concerto specifically, and learnedness that is appealing to connoisseurs of music okay. and those who aren't connoisseurs but who just like to hear it. And he said, quote, these piano concertos are a happy medium between too easy and too difficult. They are very brilliant. 
pleasing to the ear, natural without being vapid. There are passages that appeal to connoisseurs, but they are written in such a way that the less learned can be satisfied. He's saying this is for everyone. And think about today with film. What movie could you see that appeals to everyone, critics and just casual viewers alike? That's that's very uncommon. Yeah. And the third movement has a cadenza as well, with like the like the first movement. Here it's a little bit shorter, but it's fun, and I think it's combining all those things that you just read from that letter as well. Okay. And the end, I think Mozart does this sometimes, where you're just kind of going along and it's fun, and then he's like, "Okay, show's over, bye." <laughs> the whole thing just ends. All right, show's over. I'll see you at the bar. Yeah, (laughs) because we didn't know where that scale was going to go. The piano is just playing these scales. We don't know where where it's going to go. And then you're right. All of a sudden, the punctuation at the very end. Yep. Can I tell you that Leon Fleischer, I heard in an interview once, talking about this piano concerto number 21 and talking about how this concerto could appeal to people who are not musically educated but just like to listen – all the way to the other spectrum to musicians like Leon Fleischer and com- other composers and conductors. He said that he heard this piano concerto number 21 played, specifically the second movement, but the whole thing, played without really a lot of embellishment or interpretation by the performer, just sort of observing these lines that we were talking about that Mozart wrote. And he called it a magical experience. I mean, again, it's Mozart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yes. Mozart. Well, do you have anything else? I mean, it's... Just a fun one to play and enjoy. Yeah, well said. You you come away with a smile on your face, but sandwiched right in between there is a very divine, reflective second movement. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶